Crush your menopause sugar cravings just in time for summer with all-natural Bossa Bars Menopause Energy Bars. They're delicious keto and intermittent fasting-friendly bars created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the challenging stages of the pause. Try them at bossabars.com. That's B-O-S-S-A bars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we have on Amy Bloom, who is a very well-known author. She's got four books out, and we're going to be talking about her most recent book, In Love, A Memoir of Loss and Love. And this story hits a little closer to home. It's the story of her late husband who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and decided that he did not want to choose going through the process of slowly declining in his cognitive health and went to Switzerland and actually met with Dignitas, which is death with dignity and chose to end his life before all that happened. But it's a beautiful story of the love that they shared and how she worked hard to make him, his last wishes come true and is the ultimate kind of showing of love is that she put him first and allowed him to have this journey done his own way. I really just thought it was a beautiful story. It was, it really was. It really made me think about what would I do in that situation? Because you just don't know what something is like until you're faced with it. And it really does make you think about having autonomy over your own body, of having the right to make this choice. And you will find out that her husband, Brian, of course, he didn't want to die, but he didn't want to live where he was going to be a burden. Or he he just kind of said, I want people to miss me. You know, and I don't want my death to be a relief. So I I just thought that that was really an interesting story. And another important thing to note is that she's very clear that every step of the way, Dignitas was like, you can change your mind. This is not required. They make you jump through so many hoops to get to that point where you don't have a diagnosis of clinical depression, that, you know, you're doing this for reasons that really are for you. And at every right. step, any step of the way. And a lot of people call, I think they said like 70% call one time and you never That's hear correct. Again. Yeah. She said, yes, yeah, 70%. And they actually say, we hope you will change your mind. You know, they say 70% change the mind. You can change your mind at any moment, you know, while we're talking. And even if you get all the way to Switzerland, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to go through with this. And you will find out in our interview things that they had to do to make sure that Brian's wishes were met. All right. And and like you said, it's it's a really personal decision. You know, I've thought about it in reading this book and I don't know what I would do. I know I would not want to be in a situation where I did not recognize my children or my grandchildren and that they were actually, their most recent memories of me would be something that didn't reflect who I was. So the, on that respect, but until you're in that position, you don't yes. know what you would do. I, I think it would be very hard on the loved one to to support the decision. And that is an act as, and it's, now I was talking to her and you'll hear me say was an act out of love, but not out that you're not out of love with the person like, like Amy will say in the interview, but it is, it's an act of love because she didn't want, she loved her husband. She didn't want him gone. And I think that would be the, I think it would be easier for me to make the decision about myself 
but it would be harder for me to be the support in the supportive role. Right. That's true. Uh, Always remember, you can watch this video on YouTube. We have the videos of almost all of our guests up there right now, plus some fun things to check out. And with that, we are going to start the interview. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cold Topics, everybody. Today, we have the author Amy Bloom on. Today, we're going to talk about her most recent memoir, which is In Love, a memoir of love and loss. And thank you so much for being on today, Amy. I'm glad to be here. This book revolves around what happened with you and your husband and the decisions that you made with his diagnosis of Alzheimer's. We just want to know what were some of the first signs that you started to recognize that something was going on cognitively with your husband? Well, I imagine everybody's first signs were a little different depending on somebody's nature and IQ and sort of personal style. Um, You know, and my editor came back to me after my first draft and she said, you don't say anything about the early signs. And I kept arguing with her and saying, it's not necessary. Everybody goes their own way with this thing. And then I realized I didn't want to write about it because I didn't want to think about it because it was just such a painful thing. And Alzheimer's is for everybody, I think, a diagnosis made in hindsight. You know, you, you see it after you hear it after like you hear somebody go and you go, oh, oh, because it's never, you know, I mean, I have friends. I mean, I think if you're over 50, you know, you walk into the room and you're like, why am I here? And (laughs) and you think, oh, it must be dementia. But that's not actually how it works, although it does work differently for everybody. For him, he had gotten a job as a, he was an architect. He had gotten a job as a university architect, which he got entirely through this, you know, group interview process, and they loved him. By the time he got home, somebody on the committee had called him and said, you got the job, you're going you're gonna to hear from us. Um, because he was a really good architect, and as he would say, a good team player, But within months of his getting there, um, he couldn't master the printer. And he kept turning to the admin in the office. And I think, understandably, the fourth or fifth time, she was like, Brian, I I cannot run the printer for you every day. Um, And he he really never mastered it. Um, He began to work much more slowly than usual because I I think part of the experience is that somebody still has, in some sense, the sort of cognitive muscle memory, but it is harder to call it up. His balance um, became a real problem for him. His his walk kind of changed. And um, he would just, I mean, he fell off the front porch, he fell off the steps, He gashed his hand, pulling something out of a bush. Just a certain unawareness, I would say. His proprioception altered. He also just became more withdrawn. I mean, he was a pretty gregarious guy and was suddenly sort of saying, oh, I just didn't feel like going. I just didn't feel like talking. We went to a get-together with old, old friends and 
the the kids who were you know grown people by now you know had known him as Uncle Brian their entire lives and the young woman came up to me and she said is is Brian okay he just seems not himself and I said to Brian are you feeling okay he was like yeah what's the problem you know I just didn't feel like talking but that itself was such an unusual thing for him so you know he became more irritable um and also more and more talked about the past in some sense found the present unwelcoming or unappealing or too difficult he had gone into surgery and had mentioned to his doctor afterwards that he was having some cognitive issues and the doctor said oh well it could be you know from the surgery and wait two weeks and he seemed pretty adamant after those two weeks he wanted to be tested I want to say it wasn't shocking, but do you think it was almost a relief to know that there was a diagnosis for what he was going through? You know, I don't think there is ever relief with this kind of diagnosis because this kind of diagnosis basically just says to you, things will get much worse. That, that's the news we have for you. We have no treatment. We don't even have actually any useful palliative care. So this is what you're going to be going through for the next 8, 10, 12, 15 years, and it will only get worse. So I think that he was not shocked. I think he was sort of stunned. You know, what, what I say is that it's, it's, it's like a terrible car accident. Like you see the car coming, so you sort of know what's going to happen, and then it happens, and you are always stunned, even if you're not surprised. And you can't prevent it. It's like you can't prevent it. And I think, yeah. And, you know, I should back up a little bit because Brian just sounds like such, he sounds like such a wonderful, outgoing, someone you could just talk to. So could you share a little bit with how you met and how your relationship, you know, started? Sure. I mean, and you're right. He was very outgoing. We used to say of all the people in the family Brian could talk to anybody. You gave him a stump, he'd be like, how you doing? You come from a long line of stumps. You look like you might have played football for the stumps. You know, and by the end of the party, the person is following Brian around the kitchen going, you know, can I stay later? Can I help? Can I clean up? Clean up? Would you like to come over tomorrow? Um, I, I, I don't have those skills. I don't have those social skills, but he certainly did. We met in, um, in a small town in Connecticut that was, had a lot of Republicans, and we were not. It had a lot of Northern Europeans, and we were not. And, um, you know, we were drawn to each other as friends for a very long time. And then, as sometimes happens, you know, we fell in love. And the thing I think that drew me most to Brian and the thing that is sort of a through line for him with his life and his death is that A, he was fearless, and B, he was game. You know, if I said to Brian, honey, there is the Coney Island Drag Queen Mermaid Parade. If we leave now, we can get there for the beauty contest. He would say, let me grab my hat. Which is just a wonderful, wonderful quality. I love in your book, I can't remember the exact quote, but when you talk about how he said, you need to be with someone that doesn't mind that you're smarter than them. And I thought, 
<laughs> what a great guy. What a great person. And so, you know, the decision, and we'll get into that too, that Brian made and that you supported his decision is really out of love, just like your book is titled In Love. It was out of love because when I was listening to your book, I was listening to it on Audible. I was thinking, this is all out of love. This is the hardest decision that you could ever make and trying to even fathom putting myself in your shoes and in Brian's shoes. Everything was out of love. So do you mind sharing a little bit about what Brian's decision was and your support with that? Um, and you're right. It was out of love. I actually wanted, I thought for a long time about calling the book out of love, but then I was afraid that it would, it would land wrong and people would think like, oh, now you're out of love with him. I'm like, no, I was never yeah. out of love. Right. Even when I wanted to murder him, I was never out of love with him. Um, after Brian got the diagnosis of Alzheimer's and we were sort of sitting there in the neurologist's office and um, after the second appointment in which we have the MRI and you can see clearly the effects of the disease. Um, and after she said to him, you've probably had this for at least three years you probably had the symptoms for at least three years, which means you probably had the beginnings of it even longer than that. And, you know, certainly you should go on vacation right away. You should, you know, go mountain climbing, go kayaking, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Um, but there is no treatment. And if you want, you can join this clinical study and we'll put you at the front of the queue, which means if we ever have treatment, um, that will be available to you earlier than most people. But if you follow Alzheimer's research, what you basically see is although people try terribly hard and there's a lot of brilliant scientists at work, literally every single clinical study is a failure. Um, period, every time. And so great scientists are reduced to saying things like eat blueberries, exercise. You're like, good advice, possibly not the most helpful. So, you know, for him, we spent a, a miserable, just miserable weekend, just crying and wandering around sort of aimlessly, even in our own house, just unsure of what we were doing there or trying to do. And told my kids we were going to take the weekend and not be in touch with anybody, canceled all of our social engagements. And by Monday, he said, here's, here's what we're going to do. He said, I am not making this long goodbye. We both know what it looks like. We've both seen it up close. He said, I want people to miss me when I am gone. I don't want them to be relieved that finally I have left my body long after I have left my mind. He said, I just, I don't want to do it. Um, that, will not, that will not be a good death for me. And so we started researching and he never wavered. And therefore, although at the beginning I did say to him, you don't have to do this. I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will keep you home as long as I possibly can. You know, I will not abandon you. I will always love you. And he said, you're not hearing me. That is not the life I want. He said, that is not a life. And I am well enough now to know that that is not a life. And so we have to act now. 
we, we don't have a couple of years to hope for the best and then live through the worst. You mentioned that he kind of took the CEO role and you took the role of the researcher that was going to figure this out. And I think a lot of people, when they think of your experience, they go right to the Death with Dignity Act. And they're like, why didn't they just move to Oregon? And it's simply not that, it's not that simple to do. Can you talk a little bit about your research and why you kind of had to, it's not even ruling it out. You, he didn't qualify. Absolutely. I mean, that was our first thought. And we don't, we don't even have to go to Oregon. We're, we're in Connecticut. We can go to Vermont. You know, there are 10 pretty states you can go to and the, and the District of Columbia. But sadly, once you, once you open up the website for those states and this particular law, First of all, you're really struck by the fact that the language is practically identical in every law, suggesting that maybe, maybe there was a guiding hand because the language is identical. And what it says in all of those laws, although there is one state in which they shortened the waiting period for you to get your answer. So in every one of these states, you first of all must be terminally ill you must be completely functioning cognitively. You have to be able to have two doctors attest to the fact that you have absolutely no more than six months to live. So it's not enough that you have a terminal illness. You must be in the last stages of your terminal illness. Two doctors have to attest to that. You have two in-person interviews and you have to write an essay. Then there's a two week waiting period, which is what one of the states I believe has waived humanely. Um, and then you have to go to the drugstore, pick up your lethal dosage, take it home. And I believe that although a family member cannot help you ingest the substance, a doctor can. It will not surprise you to hear that very few people in the United States of America, a big country with a big population, very few people have been able to take advantage of this law. And that's primarily, as far as I can tell, because the law is not designed to be useful for people seeking to end their lives for a variety of reasons. It is designed to make sure that as few people as possible take advantage of this law, and they have succeeded. So nobody with any kind of dementing disease, including Parkinson's, is going to be eligible for this at the point at which they are still high functioning cognitively. So it's sort of a catch 22. If you're at the end of a terminal disease and you have a dementing disease, you will not be able to make use of these laws. And if you're earlier in the process, you will not be able to make use of these laws. You did so much research to try to find ways to do this. And really, so you then you ended up finding uh, Dignitas in Switzerland. So can you share, so that's very, there's very few that's like just that one and one other place. Pegasus, is that correct? Yeah. They're both outside of Zurich, which is sort of remarkable, but I guess not given that there's a particular law in Switzerland that says, if you do not stand to benefit from the person's death, it is not a crime to assist them in ending their life. And that's, that's the entire framework under which this organization operates. So, you know, I went down a lot of different rabbit holes, as one does when Googling. 
Um, but Dignitas popped up at some point, and then I read about it and talked to Brian about it. And he was like, yep, that's the thing for us. He said, I'd really rather be at home. I'd rather have the kids nearby. I'd rather, you know, he said, but the most important thing is that it be peaceful and painless and that you be with me. So that is what Dignitas offered us. And that is what Dignitas offers people, peaceful and legal. There was a glitch, though, when you were trying to qualify for Dignitas. Can you talk a little bit about the depression aspect? Sure. Um, And I also want to clarify for people who are not in the mental health biz, you know, clinical depression is not like a really bad thing happens or your pet dies or somebody dies and you feel terribly sad and in some sense sort of situationally depressed. But, um, you know, at Dignitas, they're very clear that they don't want to help people with serious psychiatric problems you know, choose this as their method of ending their lives. They don't want to support that. They want people who are making this judgment in a high-functioning state. And so his neurologist, unfortunately, somewhat carelessly described, and there's a little box on a form that says reason for the MRI, and she wrote clinical depression. And when I said to her, when I saw it later, why did you say this? She said, well, I know he sees a, a therapist and you know, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter that that's what I said. And I was like, but it's not true. He's never been clinically depressed. And she was like, well, it doesn't make a difference. But in fact, when we had to submit the form and the image of the MRI to Dignitas, they were like, this is no good. We, we can't take somebody who's clinically depressed. You know, we need a letter saying that he's not clinically depressed. You have to rebut this. And I'm like, Okay, so I went back to the neurologist who simply was not interested. Um, it, it wasn't worth her time. I sus- and I suspect that she may, it also may have occurred to us that we wanted it for a particular reason, which was Brian wanting to make the path towards ending his own life on his own terms. I don't think she was very supportive of that either. So in the end, um, one of the staff people at Dignitas was very helpful, and she said, basically in a very nice Swiss way. Um, I don't know how to make this more clear to you, but if you don't have a letter from a psychiatrist which rebuts this notion of clinical depression, you're not gonna, you, we're not gonna be able to support you. So then we sort of went on the search. What also struck me was that 70% of the people who contact Dignitas don't contact them ever again. Right. People want that reassurance, which I can really understand. People want to feel, if I find myself in a point in my life where I am ready to end my life because of extraordinary physical circumstances, um, I can do it. And that's very reassuring to them. And at Dignitas, I have to say, I mean, these people are at extraordinary pains to support you all the way and to support you in changing your mind if that's what you wish to do which they will ask repeatedly. When this all took place, it was, I mean, right before COVID lockdown. And I know you mentioned your tarot tarot card reader and how, you know, that's your your thing to do. I, I love my tarot card reader. I think she's really gifted. And as I say, and if you find this ridiculous, that's fine with me. I got no argument. Um, however, she is the person who said, you must take the first date that they give you. And I said, well, 
you know, just pulling ourselves together and everything that's involved. And she was just like, you need to take the first date that they give you because there will be difficulties. And she said, I'm not saying it will be impossible, but the difficulties will become more and more um, prominent. And by the time I flew back from Zurich without Brian, airports were starting to close. Wow. It's such a difficult process that you went through. Can you tell us, as far as you're comfortable, tell us what it was like on that plane flight over to Zurich and how was Brian feeling during that process? You know, in some ways, the plane flight was like lots of other plane flights. I mean, you know, we've traveled. We've been lucky enough to travel. And there we were in first class, which we certainly had never done before. So that was quite thrilling. Um, And, you know, it... It was a, very, a slightly surreal feeling for me, which was so many of the things that were so familiar and so comfortable. But then he would like go to the men's room or the newsstand, and I would realize that my heart was racing while I sat in my seat in the airport, just, just keeping track of how long he had been gone. And did I need to go to the men's room or did, did I need to follow him to the newsstand with our luggage? You know, just the anxiety of traveling with someone who needed a little backup and need a lot of supervision or care, but he needed some. And that was a new experience for me. And I wanted it not to feel too burdensome to him. So um, I was sort of a little ducks scurrying around in the background. I think for him, what he said to me more than once was that he was, um, he was sad and he was still kind of mad, but he was not afraid. I mean, he understood, you know, this is a guy who was, I said to somebody, you know, um, one of his guiding principles is if there's going to be a fight, throw the first punch. It's not everybody's approach, but it was certainly his. And I think that's how he felt about the disease, that this was not something where you waited to see what it would bring you because he knew what it would bring you. We had seen it. Um, And that if you wanted to act, you had to, as he said, you got to leave early or you don't get to leave at all. I think that was the biggest one of the biggest messages I got from your book was really just putting this into perspective, not just hearing these little bits that you hear from other places about about assisted suicide or making the decision to end your life with dignity. And it really put things in perspective and it made me think about my own morality. Would I want that? Would I want to, just like Brian was thinking, would I want people to be relieved when I passed away? And it it really put a lot of thought and a lot of understanding in your book and a lot of considering people's viewpoints and why they make the decisions that they make and not being judgmental. That was really what a message that I got from your book. Oh, I'm glad. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, people, people are free to make whatever judgments they like, but I do feel that imposing that judgment on other people's lives um, is, is first of all, untenable. And second of all, I have begun to feel somewhat immoral. You know, they, that, you know, 
part of what it is to be a decent human being, it seems to me, is to be inclined to be supportive of other human beings if they are doing their best and attempting to do no harm. I'm wondering how was the response, and I know his mother surprised you, but how was the response from the family about what he wanted to do? Well, you know, we had two sides of the family, his and mine. Um, My kids, by and large, I think mostly people like their children and think well of their children, but my kids really stepped up and were very supportive of both of us and um, just 100% there for us. And, and all of them understood Brian's decision. I mean, they knew Brian and they understood that this was, this was not a man who backed down. You know, we used to say a hard man to stop. My mother-in-law, who is, who is still with us, a devout Catholic, um, really did surprise me by being extraordinarily supportive. Also, she had, again, she had seen it close up and just grieved um, these losses due to Alzheimer's. Um, and also, I have to say, uh, two of Brian's friends, both of whom he played football with, had both been diagnosed with Alzheimer's before he was. So um, I think for his, for his family, I mean, everybody was supportive, you know, in different ways. One of the things I really, really learned, I think, and it's not that easy to learn at my age, but I think one of the things I really learned was that you can choose to hold people's behavior against them, you know, or you can forgive them. But uh, for me, I just thought, you know what? I know I have done stupid things in my life. I know I have said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing. Not always out of malice, like I think mostly not out of malice. And, you know, in the end, you either forgive people or you don't. Um, So there were a couple of relationships that I would say were damaged um, by people who just were really preoccupied with their own deep feelings about this. Not their deep feelings about Brian, just their deep feelings (laughs) about this action and the implications of it. Um, and as I say, I have done my best to like be forgiving and, um, and recognize that, that people have to work through their own path. I would say, if you want to be supportive of people who are in a health or a life crisis, you know, the way to do that is to accept their decision and find ways that you can be helpful not to try to persuade them, or as one old friend of Brian did in sending us an email, said, I've Googled Alzheimer's. It doesn't sound that bad, and you have plenty of time. I'm like, well, I appreciate the Googling, um, but maybe you would want to keep that to yourself or share it with your spouse or your therapist rather than with us. And Brian wrote back beautifully, I thought, saying... We are available for love and support. What was it like working with Dignitas? Well, one of the things that it really demonstrated to me is how hard it is in this country um, to get health care, certainly affordable health care, but health care that actually pays attention to sort of the individual's family in any way. Um, They were... 
across the board, kind, thoughtful. They weren't perfect. You know, there were times when we're waiting for the phone call and the phone call doesn't come. And I'm telling you, we were geared up for the phone call. Um, and, um, you know, we'd get an email 20 minutes after the hour saying, oh, we're so sorry, excuse me, blah, 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 we're running behind. And we would just be devastated. They were helpful. They were informative. They were supportive without being in any way sort of encouraging. They were just like, we are here to help you do this if this is what you wish to do. And our job is to make sure that you have the discernment and the cognitive judgment to proceed with this process all along the way. And, you know, they make it very clear when they give you the green light and set up a date for you to go to Switzerland that it's provisional. It is, they, are not, they are not promising you that if you come to Switzerland, regardless of the outcome of the interviews, they will go ahead. They're always very, you know, I don't mean to stereotype, but they're Swiss. They are careful. They are thoughtful. They are in no hurry. And they want to dot the I's and cross the T's. Yeah, it's just the number of times that they let Brian know that, you know, at these moments, you can change your mind. You can change your mind at all of these moments. So it really, uh, really put across the point that this is not something that they're really trying to do to get rid of people. They are doing this out of compassion and out of just, just the name, dignity, just using dignitas, using that. Absolutely. And they don't advertise you know, mm -hmm. and the people who work there are mostly volunteers, um, including the doctors who do the medical interviews after the provisional green light to see if they will give the final green light. These are all volunteers. That is amazing. And it's and almost always people who have gone through something with a close family member of, of, of a wide variety you know, either somebody who's very old and still cognitively intact, but, you know, is, it was a guy from Australia. He was a scientist. He was 94 years old. He, he wrote to them and said, my eyesight is failing. My hearing is compromised. My mobility, I really can't walk anymore. I've talked this over with my children and my grandchildren. Everybody knows I'm ready to end my life. And that's what he did. Once the procedure happens, you have to leave right away, correct? I don't have to leave right away. I mean, I sat with Brian. I have no idea how long. I sat with him as long as they let me sit with him. But then at some point, you know, they have to call the police and say there's, there's been a death. And they don't say, oh, you must be gone before this happens. But they obviously don't encourage you to sit around because it's going to be stressful and, mm -hmm. and emotionally upsetting. So um, I sat with him and then I left and went to the airport. You kind of had this image when you got home that you were going to just hide in bed for a couple of weeks. And that's not what happened. Can you describe when you got home what happened? <laughs> sure. Well, there are two things that happened. One is I, I definitely liked the idea of sort of just kind of leaving this world as much as possible, staying in bed. My therapist did point out to me that I had never done anything like that in my entire life. And I had had some pretty serious losses. I was like, yeah, but it just sounds good, you know, just crawl into bed and not, not do anything. But um, as it turns out, when I got home, my daughters were there. My son was texting me because he lives further away. Um, a, a, every appliance in the house broke down. 
I, I don't even know how to describe it. The, the, the washing machine, the dishwasher, the lights in my bedroom, the whole lot, I, just everything broke down. And, um, you know, I called my tarot card reader, who I like, she's not only a good tarot card reader, but a very sensible person. I said, do you think this is Brian? And she was like, no, no. I said, well, I've gotten an electrician and a plumber. And she said, that's what I would do. So she was like, take care of your appliances. <clears throat> so that was how it started. But we did actually, nevertheless, all of us persist in feeling like it was Brian, just, you know, waving from the other side. And then, um, and then it was the pandemic. And I was lucky enough that my daughter in Brooklyn and her wife and their little girl were suddenly slammed by the pandemic. They both had to work full time from home and had now no childcare. So I said, get in the little car and come on up. So they came on up and they were with me for five months. And I think that probably, for me, dramatically changed the course, not of the grief, but of the mourning process. I mean, I think, you know, grief is one of those things you can put it down and pick it up anytime. It doesn't leave you. You get to move forward with it. But the shape of my mourning process was very different. What I, what I wrote at one point was that it was as if I was in like a forest with all these dead trees falling on the ground and all of a sudden you look at one of the dead trees and you see that there's grass and there's flowers growing out of it. And that's how it felt to me. So that I took care of Zora every morning, you know, so that her mothers could work. And then we'd sort of hand off around lunch or nap time and I would go to my office and sit there and cry and try to type up my notes about the book. And before we go, I want to say that was Brian told you, you should write about this. Yes, he did. And I think that in some interviews, people will say things like, so he asked you to write about this. And I was like, that's (laughs) not what happened. He definitely told me. He was like, you need to write about this. This is about choice. And this is about sort of freedom. And this is about the right to live your life. And I said, I will do my best because honestly, nothing else would have gotten me to write a memoir. It's not something I ever saw myself doing or ever wished to do. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And again, people can check out the book anywhere books are sold. It's in love. And thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And thank you for your good work. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening to us today. And we want to thank Amy Bloom for sharing this story with us. I would just really recommend make sure that you check out this book, In Love by Amy Bloom. And make sure that you check out all of our social media pages. This video will be on YouTube. So if you want to watch uh, the video, it will be up on YouTube. We have a website, hotflashescooltopics.com. And we also have emails. So if you want to shoot us an email, um, asking a question, any suggestions that you would like for a topic that we would find out about or try to find the experts in that field, then we will search for them. And Thank you, Amy, for sharing your story of love and loss. Please make sure to check out that book wherever you purchase your books and probably on Kindle as well if you want to listen to the audio book. Have a great week, guys. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.